0: Hello, welcome. You're listening to Feed Play Love, a bite-sized parenting podcast, a place you can find advice, understanding and support as you care for your small humans. I'm Siobhan Hunt. When you go for that first ultrasound and hear your little peanut's first heartbeat, it's one of the most heartwarming experiences of your life, to know that a new life is growing inside you. Miscarriage can be one of the most gruelling things a parent can go through and leave scars that take a long time to heal. Annabelle Bauer is a mother of three and has gone through her own struggle with losing a child. Hi, Annabelle. How are you? Very well, thank you. Um, we don't talk a lot about baby loss, either with miscarriage or when you've carried a baby for much longer. Um, do we know how common the experience is? It's one in four... And
1: that is of recorded miscarriages. So they, it's assumed that there are some lost earlier before people even know they're pregnant or they're lost at home. So there's no official way in which they're recorded. There are approximately 100,000 miscarriages every year in Australia and over 2,000 stillbirths.
0: Right. So those figures are big yes. um, even comparatively people might say it's a small percentage but there's each of those numbers is an individual um, if we could start with miscarriage given the numbers are so high there do you think that's part of the reason why people don't seem to talk about it much or say oh you know don't tell anyone you're pregnant before three months because it's very common you might miscarriage like
1: yeah I think it's always been seen as an unfortunate event and a medical event rather than an emotional event. And the problem is that for each lady who loses a child, it's her baby, her child. So the fact that it's common or that it is one in four doesn't take away from the emotional impact. And I think people are encouraged not to say they're pregnant before 12 weeks in case it doesn't work out because the statistics are high. In previous generations, it was because women were dismissed from work when they were pregnant. So a lot of women tried to hide it for as long as possible before telling their employer. But obviously that has changed now.
0: And what was your experience? What happened to you?
1: We had a stillborn baby called Miles. We lost him at almost six months and it was an unusual scenario. We didn't have that scenario where you go... For an ultrasound, and there's no heartbeat, which is incredibly traumatic, and a lot of people I've spoken to have had that experience. We found out that he'd suffered a brain hemorrhage in utero, which is very rare, and it had left a clot in his brain, which rendered him incompatible with life. So, our experience was that we had a baby who was essentially attached to a life support machine inside of me, the placenta, but Once born, he he would die. So I was induced to deliver him early, knowing that the outcome was dire, regardless of when he was delivered.
0: And he was born still. All of, even from the beginning, that's a traumatic experience. How did the medical profession handle the situation for you?
1: Very poorly, unfortunately, we had a private obstetrician, and he was uncomfortable with interrupting a pregnancy, were his words. Uh, He was morally or conscientiously opposed to termination, which I was confused by, as in our case, we weren't terminating a pregnancy because it was unwanted. We were having to let go of a baby we desperately wanted because it was incompatible with life, So he handed us over to the local public hospital and we were delivered by a midwife who was absolutely beautiful. I would describe her as an angel. She knew we didn't want to be there. She knew that we wished upon every star in the world that our baby would come out breathing and thrive, but that was not our reality. So sadly for us, we had a very bad experience um, with a medical professional. I don't think that's usual, but... Was his, what was he expecting
0: you to do, carry him to full term?
1: I think so, and I think regardless, he said he'd made a decision early in his career not to help women who chose to end a pregnancy, be it for down, a Down syndrome diagnosis or any other factor, which I found really hard to deal with because with mis- miscarriage and stillbirth, a lot of women feel a lot of guilt or place the blame on themselves or feel responsible in some way. So then if you don't have good medical support, that in itself is exacerbated because you think, is he judging me? Are we making the right decision? Should we be doing this? Is there hope? Um, as his value was on life, obviously. So it was a very confusing and confronting situation. Thankfully, we then fell into the care of maternal fetal medicine and the professor who cared for us was exceptional he held our hand he said this isn't a termination in the you know the way that most people consider them it's a genetic interruption of pregnancy and he rephrased it and worded it in a way that made us feel not at peace with but far more comfortable with our decision and he also said to us repeatedly this isn't a choice or a decision that you're making lightly or because there are options. It's something that you have, essentially have to do.
0: What would have the situation been with Miles had you carried him to term?
1: There was a great risk of me having uterine rupture because the clot had caused swelling in the brain. It had lodged between uh, where all the fluid flows in and out. The skull, because it's You know, babies, the platelets aren't formed, could just keep expanding, which then puts the mother at great
0: risk. So, when you went to the midwife, was that at the same time when you were handed on to the professor who gave you good care?
1: We took about three weeks to finally sign the paperwork. I couldn't, I needed to read every bit of information, I needed every last scan, I needed to talk to every person I could think of. So we also met with neonatal neurologists. We met with professors of um, obstetrics, as well as a team of people at the Women's and Children's who helped guide us. I spoke with radiographers, paediatricians, everyone. Everyone I could find I spoke to. And I was actually quite, I wouldn't say aggressive, but quite forthright in my quest for knowledge it's really hard to get information sometimes especially in the public system because it's time poor and this was also the week before Christmas and then the week from Boxing Day to New Year's Eve so it was a skeleton staff but I just kept at it and spoke to as many people as I could mainly for my own peace of mind
0: what was that experience like? It's Because you were doing research, but it, it was not like you were trying to find the best school for yeah. your kid to go to. <laughs> no. or it's, it was every, every kind of response you would have been given yeah. would have, I imagine, triggered an emotional reaction in you.
1: Yeah. I suppose for me, it was to help me come to terms with what was going to happen. I felt that if I didn't, give it its absolute best shot, I might forever have trauma from the regret and the remorse of not doing my best. And I suppose it's with anything you do for your child, you want the best outcome or you want to feel that you've made the best decision possible.
0: So these were the experts telling you um, about Miles's situation yes. in utero and yes. how it would have impacted on him?
1: Yes. Yep. Okay. So I think for me, it was just about peace of mind and making sure that we had every fact available.
0: So um, it would have meant, were they telling you that if he was born at full term, he would have had, uh, he would have been brain dead. Is that correct?
1: Highly likely. It's like an adult having an aneurysm. So I have likened it to if an adult has an aneurysm, they are most likely just to drop dead on the spot. Whereas if a, if you're on a life support machine and you have an aneurysm, your body is kept alive and you keep growing and so on. So it was essentially the same for Miles.
0: I hear what you're saying. Um, so you are, as you say, in an, an unusual position because when a baby is born still, mm-hmm. that can parents may have some notice. They may have no notice at all. Yeah. Um, And you had uh, three weeks, as you say, before you were induced. I can't imagine any of those scenarios make the situation itself any easier. How did you feel about that process?
1: Um, I think you spend the whole time wishing it would go away or that someone will ring from Canada and say, I'm an expert in this field and I've stumbled upon your case and I can help you. But I think gut feelings can be strong sometimes and I knew from the very first scan that told us of the initial bad news that something was really wrong and I just, as much as I wanted an answer that would, you know, change the course, his course, I I knew it just wasn't coming so I was having to start to come to terms with the fact that we would lose the baby. Did that help in any way? It didn't really. Um, what did help was an incredibly close friend of mine had also had a stillborn baby in very similar circumstances 10 years before. And hers too was the situation of a few weeks of poor diagnosis rather than an abrupt, there is no heartbeat scenario. So having her to call really helped. And she helped validate all of my feelings, my fears, my worries, answered questions for me, which I couldn't think of anyone else who could answer. It's not when you're having a a normal, healthy baby and you're about to go into labour or, you know, you're, you're due, you can ring friends and say, what does this mean or did you feel this or did you get that pain or were you worried about this? But with a topic like miscarriage or stillbirth, you often don't know who you, you who you can call because you don't know who's been through it, or you may not have anyone who's been through it who you're close enough to be in contact with.
0: How were your family and friends at this point?
1: I shut down and shut them out because it. The first scan was actually on my birthday. Oh gosh! And everyone wanted to catch up for a drink, so I was really. I just went into hiding and that two-week period from December 11 until Christmas Day is a whirlwind of fun, frivolity, and so on, and I could not have been further from that. I couldn't... I think the grief hit me from the moment I knew something was wrong, and grief is not just mental, it's physical. So every part of your being feels exhausted or as though it's... Compromised in some way, and I just all I wanted to do was get our house ready for Christmas, get the kids' presents wrapped and under the tree just in case it all happened before Christmas. So, friends and family would have been wonderful support if I'd let them, I suppose, is my answer.
0: Yeah. You just mentioned your other children. You've got yep. two sons? Two sons and a daughter. And a daughter? Yeah. What was, um, how was it like for you operating as a mum still in that time? Like you've got a very intimate and personal grief and trauma happening at the same time as having to parent three young children.
1: I suppose everyone has a volume of capacity and I had to shut out anything that was unnecessary and reserve all energy I had for the children and... I mean, that meant basically not doing anything for those few weeks. And it was school holidays, so I had all three at home. (laughs) Um, We went to movies and I sat in the cinema and sobbed for the whole two hours whilst they sat there stuffing their faces with popcorn, thinking it was the best day ever. You know, I just took them out and did tons of stuff and basically wore sunglasses and cried. And the two older boys... Didn't notice much, and my daughter's three, and she'd come up and say, Mummy's sad, but not much more. So, I mean, thankfully, and my children are delightful, but children don't notice
0: things. No, you worry about that, don't you? Yeah. And then you're like, Oh, actually, no. they just saw a bright piece of Lego. Yeah,
1: <laughs> so <laughs> they were easily distracted with fun activities and so on.
0: And what about after?
1: After we didn't have. The older boys for the two weeks after we had miles, thankfully, as that stage, I would say I was catatonic. I barely left the sofa. We actually went away for a week because I said to my husband, "I'm really bored of crying in the same room.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Can I have another room to cry? Can we just go somewhere
1: else so I can cry Um, somewhere with a nice view? And I just we went to a seaside town in rural South Australia, and I just cried for another week. And I read a lot of books. I went horse riding, which I found bizarre. (laughs) You know, you look back and think, why Why did I do that? I that?" I, I grew up horse riding, and I saw a lady on the beach with horses. And I thought, I wonder if I could ask her to ride one. And she said, yeah, sure, I'd love your help. And it was really weird because it's moments like that I thought, I'm not dead you know, I've lost this baby, but I'm still alive and I I can still do things and I can still be happy and I can find joy. But it it will be harder and it will take a long time to get back to that. And I think being away and in isolation helped enormously because I really grieved hard. And then once the boys came back, we went away again with them and I wasn't as fragile. I wouldn't say I was great, but I'd I'd really gotten a lot of it out.
0: Yeah. Um, and the grief of losing a child like that, I imagine, doesn't ever go away. Um, is that something that other people appreciate?
1: Do you think? Sometimes I think anyone who's gone through it appreciates it. I think it's a really hard concept for people who haven't been through it sometimes to understand. I mean, I have friends who haven't had miscarriage or stillbirth who, who get it. I know they get it. And they talk about Miles as part of our family, which we consider him to be. But there are other people who I think don't... It's not that they don't value the life, but they don't understand what it is that you miss because you never had that baby in your home or as an active member of the family, I think they're curious to know, well, what do you miss about them? And that's the hardest thing to define. It's what you miss is what you don't know. So often when I'm with the children and wrangling the three in and out of the car, I think, I wonder where Miles would be in all of this. And I wonder if he'd be a good baby or if he'd be a squawker or, you know, if he would have been tall like his dad or if he would have been you know, a foodie like my eldest. So you just, you have this lifetime of wonder and sort of wanting to know, but you know that you'll never, ever find out what they were like or so on. I mean, we know what he looked like because after he was born, we held him and spent time with him. But even then, you can't really picture what they'll be
0: like as an adult or a child. In that time, what was the most helpful thing that people around you did or could have done?
1: Uh, My husband kept saying to me, you'll have good days and bad days and don't try and fight them. So he said, if you're having a bad day, have it and have it spectacularly. (laughs) Um, Bless him. If you're having a good day, enjoy it and don't feel guilty. So if you do feel like having a drink or going out dancing don't think oh I shouldn't do that because I'm mourning my child just do it go on, go and enjoy it because it's pretty much certain that then the next day or week might be really bad again so he just said accept that it is what it is and don't try and fight the grief because it will keep coming at you if and if you try and bury it it's just going to keep popping up
0: and you're writing a book now yes why?
1: Why? I read a book after Miles died called Ask Me His Name by an English author who lost her son Teddy at three days. And I read it in two days. I just whipped through it and I thought, right next, where's the next one? I need another book like this. It was a really hopeful story. It was uplifting. It wasn't a woe is me sob story, even though her story was tragic. And then I searched for other, other things to read, and I just couldn't find anything. Everything was very clinical, very psychological, or very muted. And uh, I guess because if it was written by a medical professional, they need to be careful with their words about what they advise. So I thought maybe I should write a warts and all from one mother to another of what it's like living and learning to live again and laugh again and be happy again when you have endured a trauma like miscarriage or stillbirth. So, I mean, this is not very PC, but it's it's like the antidote to what to expect when you're expecting. It's like what to expect when you're no longer expecting. And a lot of um, blogs and so on online focus on the day that people lose their baby. So they talk about, you know, the heartbreak of going into that ultrasound full of excitement and leaving knowing that their baby has died but very little is said about the weeks, months and the years after which follow. So I thought I would read it and I needed it, so I decided to start writing
0: it. And what has that process been like?
1: I've really enjoyed it. I think people have assumed it's been harrowing for me.
0: That was what I was assuming, yes. Yeah,
1: and it allowed me to get so much off my chest which I couldn't articulate. So when people would come up to me and say, how are you? I'd say, oh, good, thanks. Because I didn't want to say, actually, I've been crying since 4am. I'm devastated. I I I don't know what to do with my life. I'm confused. I've lost my identity. I, I just didn't know how to tell people how I was feeling. And I'm quite good at that, usually. So I thought, I'll get this all out on paper. And I'll... Oh, keyboard. Um, I'll nut it all out in my own head. And then maybe... My words will help other people articulate how they're feeling when they're asked those questions, because it is really hard to answer sometimes how you are if you're not great. Oh, yeah. We're all conditioned to say, yep, yep, good, fine,
0: thanks. And also sometimes when people ask, they're not the people who need to or deserve to hear how you're really doing. Yeah,
1: exactly. So writing the book, there were times where it was really overwhelming and I would cry my eyes out writing certain parts and then there were other parts which I read back on later and thought whoa I was that you know that is dark (laughs) (laughs) I sort of look back and think I've really I have come a long way and the grief has changed and early on when people said oh you one day you may look back and smile when you think of him I thought no Never, 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 never can I smile about this. You know, it will forever be a horrible, dark thing that happened. And now I look back on certain things and I can smile. So it is, for me, really valuable to have that there because I look back and can see just how far I've come. And I think the writing
0: certainly has helped. Annabelle, thank you so much for talking with us.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: That's Annabelle Bauer, Mum of Three, and owner of her own catering company, Food by Annabelle, to find out more about her, take a look to the take a look at the links in the notes of this episode, and I'm sure we will hear from Annabelle again once her book is finished.